Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Pete, doing fantastic. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Before I get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of many of our guests. Today, we have a special episode for you on a topic that is near and dear to all of us, which is mentorship. We invited two surgeons that have been mentors to hundreds of trainees, but more specifically have been mentors to both of us, and for both of us have been really instrumental in our, our growth. First, we have Dr. Charles Bush-Joseph, who is a sports and shoulder surgeon at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Bush-Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we're really happy to have you. In addition, we have Dr. Jay Keener, who's a shoulder surgeon at, the, at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Keener, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel, for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. And we're super excited to chat with you both about mentorship. Um, it's important to us. And you both have been, as Pete said, instrumental in, in our careers, in our lives, and in our growth and development. We'd like to start by asking each of you, and first we'll start with you, Dr. Bush-Joseph, when do you feel like you first became a mentor? When did you have that moment, or has it just been something that's evolved? You know, I think it's something that evolves, actually, because, you know, throughout my career, and I'm nearly the, near the tail end of my career, early on, I felt I could be a mentor to younger residents and fellows and medical students and high school students who were trailing me, whether it be two or three or five or 10 years, because I had gone through the mill or the experiences that they were about to go through. Certainly, I was not ready to be a mentor for anybody in terms of the larger world, whether we consider our association, our national societies, uh, even dealing with the uh, local politics of a medical center or department. So I, I think, you know, your your target mentee is somebody that, that you're comfortable with and they have to look up to you, whether it be out of immediate recognition or a longer term personal relationship. And Dr. Keener, how about you? When do you feel like you first became a mentor? Was there a moment? Was there someone that you mentored that's that you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. This is happening. Or was it more, um, you know, more over time that you felt that you developed into that role? You know, it was interesting. I, I thought about this topic a little bit before the podcast. And I think uh, the first time that I felt like I really looked up and mentored or was a mentee to somebody was when I was a junior resident uh, at, during residency. It's like some of the uh, senior residents that you're paired with on your teams, um, you saw how they, they, how they did things, how they took care of patients, how they handled clinics, how they um, carried themselves. And I, I, re I realized that you become a mentor as you, when you're a senior resident. And um, a lot of that, you don't realize that it's happening, that you've, that you've kind of evolved into that role, but, I think when you're a senior resident, you is your is probably the first time you are indirectly a mentor to the junior resident. So it starts off early and then it becomes a lot more formalized when you become an attending faculty member. So speaking of mentors, Dr. Keenan, what who along the way was one of your biggest mentors and what are some of the things you think you learned from them about how to how to mentor people properly or how to how to give people the best advice? I think probably the biggest mentor that stands out to me was uh, Ken Yamaguchi. So he was my fellowship director and uh, responsible for the majority of my training during fellowship. And I think I learned a lot on uh, kind of indirectly from him and how to be a good mentor. Um, 
I think uh, I learned um, also, I think people that, that are your mentors, sometimes you learn what you want to do, but also what you don't want to do as a mentor sometimes. So um, I think uh, um, there's a give and take. Uh, there's a plus and, um, and minus relationship. And I think that was Dr. Yamaguchi taught me a lot about leadership skills and how to get plugged into the society and um, what it takes to, to, he mentored me very, very well early in my career. Um, so for that, I'm very grateful, but I learned a lot both directly and indirectly from him, I think. What about you, Dr. Bush Joseph? As, as you were coming up through your training, who was your most important mentor? You know, I'd have to say there were two people uh, because, you know, mentors, they, they generally have a big influence of where you're going and sometimes they actually help you change directions. And uh, one for me is uh, Ed Voidis, who's at the University of Michigan. I was a medical student there at the time. And I, I had already planned on, or I already had applied to internal medicine residency because I thought back then, a long time ago, they, they were the smart guys. And, the, and I met Ed on a rotation and Ed really took a, uh, uh, you know, took a liking to me and, and really just helped open an eye up for me and really gave me good, solid counseling you know, without trying to sway me, just gave me lots and lots of information. Uh, and then, so that helped me make a, a career choice. And then obviously, uh, uh, Bernie Bach, obviously Bernie was a young attending, brand new when I was a third year resident. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't, I thought Bernie was, you know, a seasoned professor when he got there, but it just shows you the timing that, that I lined up well with him. And I think he identified me and, and we developed a relationship that, that obviously has gone to, you know, for over 30, 35 years. Yeah, that, that, that brings up a good topic. When I was, uh, when I started off in my schooling, I was a physical therapist for a while. And uh, um, it's interesting you say that uh, because I had no intentions of becoming a physician when I first entered the medical field. And uh, there was a mentor that uh, uh, Dr. Bill Post, who was a sports medicine physician at West Virginia University, and I, I, I got to shadow him in his clinics, and it was amazing to see kind of taking orthopedics to another level. Uh, as a PT student, uh, I was very impressed by what an orthopedic surgeon could do over and above what a physical therapist could do. So that was a large influence on me to choose orthopedic surgery as a specialty. So I think that was a mentorship that I did that that happened early on in my career that was very influential to where I am now. Peter, if I may just add though, I, I would say that, um, and obviously I don't want to make mention of, but specifically, but you know, I had some negative mentors that, that people that when I was very young, who, you know, for whatever reason, I, I sort of met and, became, and, and, and had lots of contact with, and they wanted to guide me, but I honestly didn't like the direction that they were guiding me. And, and so, I was, I think that the mentee or a young orthopedic surgeon, you know, your job is to sample. Uh, and just like, I hate to say it, being at a buffet or, or at a cookie shop, you know, you're gonna say, you know, I really like that cookie. I tried a bunch of them and, uh, and that's the cookie I like. And, and so it's not just, uh, oh yeah, I, well, the, the mentor's got great destination to where his mentee is gonna be. And that's generally not the case. So um, I, I think as Jay was saying that, Certain people are influences on you, but you're ripe and ready to be influenced. And sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative, but it's the young surgeon or the young trainee, they've got to make those value decisions on, on what advice or what directions they really like. 
One of the things I love about both of the stories you told is how drastically altered the courses of your lives were by those mentors, that both of you were heading in different directions. Dr. Joseph, it sounds like you were going to be an internist. Dr. Keener, you were a physical therapist. And now you are doing something completely different than what you would have been doing had you continued on those paths. Have you, have you found that that's also been true of the mentor-mentee relationships that you can point to individuals? You say, I, can, I feel like I really made a difference in that person's life. Dr. Joseph, you first. Um, you know, I have, and just, uh, you know, again, I'm very old and, and so I just having lots and lots of kids come through my office. I, I generally have lots of high school kids who spend uh, summers with me and chasing me around and, and I, and, and even college kids who are trying to get a medical school and the, the opportunity that I can provide them is that, yes, they can talk to me, an old guy who's got, you know, grizzled experiences, but generally I have a medical student with me, a junior resident or a senior resident and occasionally a fellow. So it allows these younger people to to, sam to get that mentor sampling. And, uh, and for many patients, I, you know, for many young residents, like when young Rachel Frank, when she was a resident, Rachel found the, the smart senior residents and the smart fellows who helped foster her career. And I think Rachel would tell you she was able to sample, but there's quite a few that, uh, that, that I can think in particular of help. And there's nothing better, I'd be honest with you, in my role, to get that call or that email, I just got into medical school, or I just matched somewhere. You know, you could just, you're just beaming like you would be happy when your child uh, hits such a milestone. So I, you know, I can't tell you how, how uh, self-rewarding it is to be a mentor, especially in, in our field. How about you, Dr. Keenerman? Have you found mentoring to be a rewarding process? Absolutely. I think uh, the thing that stands out is when you have a medical student who's rotating on your rotation as a third or fourth year, and they're kind of undecided, but they really click on your rotation and they choose orthopedics as a specialty. I think that that's very re rewarding. And it's uh, it's nice to be able to help them through the process of, uh, of residency matching and uh, choosing a program that fits with them. Uh, likewise, when you're dealing with uh, junior residents and um, they happen to really uh, enjoy your particular your particular field of medicine of you know in my case shoulder and elbow and they choose that as a as a career path I think that's very rewarding it's nice to um, nice to kind of have a formative play a formative role in their career development so that's very rewarding for sure what do you both find is the most difficult part of mentoring um, you know, there's a lot of rewarding aspects and you both have just highlighted just a few of them, but I think that have strongly impacted each of you. Um, and I know Pete and I have had some limited experience with this as our careers grow and we've mentored individuals. Um, but what, there are some difficult components. What have you guys found is the most difficult? Dr. Keener, how about we start with you? What's difficult about mentoring for you and, and what advice do you have for our listeners in that regard? I think uh, uh, when you're mentoring junior faculty, so if I, if I, if we've, when we've hired a couple of young shoulder and elbow attendings, I think it, the important thing is that, that you need to align your mentorship influences along their career goals. And not everybody has the same career goals as you, as you do. So not everybody has uh, a strong focus in research or, or wants to be, wants to do a traveling fellowship, for example, or, it's important that you take time to spend actual time discussing their career goals and making sure that the, that you can help foster their career development, even if it doesn't necessarily align with the goals that you have or that or the path that you took. 
So I think uh, just remaining objective and trying to to become a mentor that's malleable to the goals of the person that you're trying to the mentee, I think, is is something that takes um, it takes a, a conscious effort to take a step back and assume that role. And Dr. Bashosef, what about you? What have you found difficult about mentoring apart from, you know, the constant phone calls, texts, and emails that you might get from a certain former resident or fellow about cases? What other things do you find difficult about mentoring? You know, it, it's hard sometimes when, you know, the person that you're trying to help and influence um, is, got, is on a negative path, you know, for whatever reason that, that the circumstances that, that they're in is just, you know, they're in a, a bit of a downward spiral, either either emotionally or perceptually. Um, and sometimes you, you know, you have to, you know, you got to be the parent in the room in that sense and just say, I just, I disagree. You know, I, I, a job of a mentor is not a cheerleading and pure, pure affirmation. Oh yeah, you're, you're great, you're great, you're great. Um, because part of being a mentor is that what makes us different than a life coach or a counselor, we're supposed to have knowledge of the space or the decision making that's being made. So, you know, a life coach is going to tell you, well, how do you feel about this decision? Our job is to sometimes say, that's a bad choice. You know, this is not going to work. You're going to hit up, you're hitting a wall and you have to recognize that wall. And you want to do that without sort of damaging the perceptual relationship that you have with, uh, with, with who you're trying to counsel. You know, to follow up on that, um, one of the, I think, hot topics in medicine in general, not just orthopedic surgery and not just shoulder and elbow surgery or upper extremity surgery, is the idea of having not only a mentor, but a surgeon coach. Um, and there's companies that do this. There's individuals that do this. There's there's a lot of attention paid to this, almost like in other fields, a life coach or something like that, but, but surgeon coaches. Do you guys think that this is something that is helpful for residents, fellows, or young faculty? Is this something that should be implemented? Or do you think mentorship covers that role for, you know, for most, most surgeons? Um, so kind of coaching versus mentorship. What are your thoughts on that? Dr. Joseph, let's go back to you because you were just talking about that a little bit. Well, I, you know, I think, I think a mentor can be both, but I do think that uh, sometimes you just need a technical coach. Um, you know, I'll, I'll freely admit, Jay Keener is a much better shoulder surgeon than I am. I mean, he's he's very experienced in some sophisticated things that that came after my training and that I don't have the same level of. And yet I would depend on him for that for that expertise in a, in a procedure that, that I'm not as familiar with. By the same token, though, you still want to have somebody who you have confidence in that understands the anxieties that you have and also experiences and how you've made decisions before. So I, I think there's a role for both. A mentor can be both. But if they don't have that necessary skill, uh, you know, I, I know who I'm going to ask questions about a particular procedure, a particular problem. Uh, whereas uh, other people, I, you know, I may ask them about that problem, but I don't really trust their judgment over, you know, political or financial or, or, or departmental type moves. So I think you can have both. I am a little leery, and I'll be honest with you, over the concept of industry-sponsored um, coaches. Only in a sense is that you have to say that yes, you in 99% of the time it probably works out great because you know it's a trusted surgeon is very experienced, but you know they're implicit bias and they're being paid for to guide you to say yes, uh, you know uh, technique X using uh, implant X um, is the best way to go, and uh, and so you I think that's the number one job of a mentor it has to say that uh, that any advice I give 
I will not personally profit by. Now, there's times I love Peter. When Peter was a resident with us, he's fabulous. I knew if I gave Peter a, an assignment, he was going to nail it. And yes, I would probably was rewarded by it. But I, you know, I ha hopefully Peter didn't have the thought that I was giving him the assignment just to make me look good. And that's that's the hard thing. And when I think when you have an industry relationship there, it's a little tough. And so uh, I, that's the one nervousness I have on that topic. So I'd be interested in Jay's, uh, Jay's thoughts. No, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. I think, you know, in this age of digital media, we sometimes, our surgeon, our surgeon coaches are sometimes uh, techniques that we see on the internet. You know, uh, how do we execute this surgery uh, with this deformity or, or with this complex problem? And sometimes you're relying on your peers and your friends and the internet to kind of help you through that. But I would make, draw a delineation or a, a line between that and what a true mentor does which is, um, as Dr. Fitzjoseph said, is, is a, an unbiased opinion on, on specific techniques or, or pathways to help guide your career. So, I mean, surgeon coaches definitely play a role, um, but, and I, I think that it doesn't really supplant the, the value of a mentor. Well, Dr. Keener, you were a critical mentor to me uh, during fellowship, and I, um, I learned so much from you. Um, but I can probably appreciate how it's, you know, I know that you're a critical piece also of the residency at WashU and how it's probably very different to interact with a fellow versus a resident. Tell us how you approach those two different relationships differently. I think a lot of times with residents, your goal is just to kind of um, uh, get them get them reps in the clinic and in the OR, make them um, proficient surgeons in the basic surgical techniques, teach them how to think. Um, uh, teach them uh, the nuts and bolts of your specific specialty. With a fellowship, though, uh, a lot of times the fellows that we train are going into academics or they're going into uh, specialty private practice. And I think that for them, the mentorship is deeper. Um, so you have to give them guidance not only on how to, how to be a good surgeon in their particular field, but how to choose the right job how to, once they have the right job, if they're in uh, academics, for example, how to make a difference in their society, how to get their foot in the door. Um, there's a lot of different pathways that you have to mentor them in building relationships with other surgeons, becoming involved in the society, um, 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 building a practice. There's a lot more that goes into it with fellowship uh, mentorship. And I, I think that uh, obviously uh, we've been blessed that the fellows that we've had here at WashU and Peter, you're a perfect example. Sometimes people have such innate skill that they don't require a whole lot of mentorship. They just need a little bit of guidance. But uh, uh, there's, I think, fellowship mentorship is just takes it to another level as opposed to uh, residency mentorship. Residency is uh, is important, obviously, but your fellowship mentorship is a lifelong relationship that you develop with somebody. I think especially in a small society like shoulder and elbow where you're constantly going to be collaborating and you're, you're a member of a society that has, um, you know, uh, very targeted goals and limited membership. So uh, that relationship is long lasting. Peter, I would just add on that, that um, <clears throat> I think a, a mentor like, like Dr. Keener, helps you understand quickly that the world, as you continue to ascend higher and higher in your training, that your world is actually getting smaller and smaller. And that, you know, that you have to realize the, 
uh, that, that small behaviors or small decisions can have more lasting effects when the circle of influence in your society is only a couple hundred, uh, you know, I, or, you know, I mean, I'm in a larger society, say AS or um, AOSSM, which is, you know, 3,600, where ASES is, is 400. And of those who are high level academic players, it's, it's a much smaller even segment. So understanding um, the size of the, of, the, of the field you're playing in and, and who are important relationships to establish is, is critical. And again, that, that's where uh, you know, a mentor like Dr. Keener can help you navigate that early on because you don't understand that at the front end when you're, a, uh, when you're a, a, an entering fellow. You're worried about, geez, will I be a good surgeon? Will I be a good doctor or not? But once you sort of cross that halfway point of fellowship, your, 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 your anxieties, where am I going to be? What's my practice going to be like? How will it develop? Um, where, where, what sphere of influence will I have? And those are complex times because you're trying to refine your skills and knowledge base of being a good doctor. But now I'm thinking not about the next year, what's the next five to 20 years going to be? And that's hard. It's, uh, it's very, you know, this time of year, Fellows have high levels of anxiety until they, quote, sign on the line and, and have a job. Then all of a sudden they exhale. It's kind of like a, a fourth year medical student that already got matched. You know, the, your blood pressure and your pulse go down 20, 30 points. I think that's such an interesting topic you bring up and certainly um, an important one that I sometimes wish people had told me about earlier is how small the field is and how often you can say something and it can... Um, you cannot mean something by it, but it can quickly come back around, um, back at you quicker than you think. Um, so certainly, I, I think that's great, great advice. And um, I wish I wish you I wish you told me that three years ago. But yeah, <laughs> Peter, I may have told you. I don't know if you heard it. <laughs> probably right. Probably you told me, and I wasn't listening. Yeah, that's that sounds that sounds more accurate. More accurate. Let me ask you guys. You know, Pete was asking you about mentoring residents and fellows. Um, and I think the advice is phenomenal. And I certainly have benefited, um, benefited from that greatly um, with my time, you know, under Dr. Bush Joseph, both as a resident and a fellow. Um, what is your approach for mentoring junior partners, junior faculty? Because this is a little bit nuanced because they're, they're your partner, they're on your team, but they're also competition in private practice settings and, and in some academic settings. Um, they're they're new and they're green, but they're probably hungry and eager to get going. What, what's your approach for mentoring them, Dr. Bishosh? Let's start with you. You've had um, a recent new hire in the last couple of years, and you've seen a lot of new hires over the years. How, how do you take them on? You know, I, I think they, the first thing it's a it, um, and Bernie Bach told me the first thing, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And and usually when fellows come out of uh, training, you know, they want to sprint, they want to run fast, and uh, and so they, they can get overly aggressive sometimes and they, they make aggressive decisions because they're trying to finish the race too soon. Um, and so it's hard that you want to keep them settled, but have set incremental goals. Where, where do you see your practice being in, in six months, in a year, in, uh, in two years? What kind of relationships with your ancillary staff do you expect to have? Is it purely professional or cordial? Or or semi uh, or semi uh, conversational and and uh, and overly friendly. Um, what are the establishments that you want to have with with your competitors? Um, you know, I can tell you, young surgeons who've come into town and immediately 
start trashing competitors, I got to tell you, that fails miserably in virtually every scenario because um, your competitors will do the same to you. And so you have to see that it's a big world. There's a lot of more patients than there are surgeons. There's a lot of patients who need good care. And so you can always enhance your practice, not at the expense of someone else. If you're doing it at the expense of somewhere else, someone else, I will tell you, it's going to come back to bite you. Dr. Keener, how about you? How about, you know, you, you were mentioning this a little bit before in terms of some of the new hires. Um, how do you approach that when they get in there? Um, and, you know, are you one of those mentors? I'm assuming you are from all the things Pete's told me about you. You know, you're available at two in the morning if they have a call when they're on call and, and, and need some help. How, how do you approach them as they develop their career and career tra trajectory at WashU? I think the important thing is to meet with them regularly. I think uh, uh, we try to establish monthly monthly meetings for a while and then quarterly meetings meetings just to discuss how their practice is developing. I, I think it's important to make sure that uh, they have the resources that they need to build the practice that they want. Um, that's probably one of the one of the biggest concerns of a new graduate is is building a clinical practice. The other thing is 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 kind of um, uh, is understanding their long-term career goals and then and then can we meet some goals at maybe three years and five years um, setting setting milestones to get them to that end point and that usually involves involvement in the society establishing paths of research that will be meaningful that they can build upon um, so the, the key is just meeting with them regularly getting feedback building their practice making sure they have the infrastructure and resources to execute their research, collaborating with them on the research, uh, serving as a mentor for them for their, we have a, um, a master's in clinical science that most of the new uh, faculty obtain. So being a mentor with their research projects with that, um, just meeting with them regularly and getting feedback from them, giving them advice, uh, just that regular interaction carries a lot of weight, especially early on in their practice. Not only does it help them build their practice, but it helped it reinforces with them that you're an ally for them, and uh, you will, you know, be be an active mentor for them all the way through uh, as they reach their career goals. So that's that's probably the most important thing. It's just regular interaction. You know, I would just add one thing. I think Peter and I had this conversation before we came on um, on the air. Um, I don't think I said the word no until I was about 44, 45 years old. And uh, that's a hard one. And, um, um, you know, maybe this is an old guy talking again. We said, oh, you never say no. And, and we say that young millennials or, or, or Gen Z's or Gen Y's or whatever, you know, have a different li lifestyle and approach. But, you know, when it comes to your professional development, honestly, you can't say no to your in your mid 40s. And if you do that too early or too often, um, you know, they, people stop asking. So uh, that's a tough one, how to measure and how to manage. but. Um, you, your default answer should be yes to virtually every question um, until you can really justify a no uh, because it's quote unreasonable or, or, or the timing is just impossible. So. I wanted to ask you a question, Dr. Pistrosa, about that specifically because I think one of the things that can be really challenging early in practice is whatever walks through the door in your clinic, you're like, I'm going to handle this. So whatever, you know, disaster, non-union, you know, no glenoid left case that comes in, you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm going to do this. And then often, you know, as a junior faculty, you don't have enough OR time, you know, you're there on Friday night at 7 p.m. starting the case. 
you know, maybe you have the fewest resources. You don't have a fellow, you have like the intern, or maybe you don't have anyone to help you. What, what advice do you have for, for, um, junior faculty as they approach those portions of their career? Because I think that's often when things can go wrong. Um, how do you mentor someone about that's those kind of situations? You know, I, I, Peter, I think that's probably the most critical thing that I think that, that people listening to this uh, uh, conversation tonight can really take away. I think you have to have two things. Uh, number one, you have to have uh, uh, a, a mentor that's either in the group or outside of your group. So in your department, you do have to establish relationships, you know, that, that uh, yeah, I, Dr. Keener, I know he's going, his daughter's getting married tomorrow night, uh, but I've got to ask him some questions. I'm not asking him to come in and help me, but I just need his advice on what to do and how to manage these situations. Junior faculty, you know, their testosterone or too much estrogen or whatever, gets them to the point to say, any, any ask of a question is a sign of weakness. And that's the wrong answer. That is the old days when I grew up and that was the wrong approach. Uh, and, and the second thing is if you feel that you're over abusing your local mentor, you're the local person that you need for guidance and short term and quick answers. Yeah, so having, that's where the fellowship director comes into play. And, and, and uh, I can tell you, having been part of you know, training over 120 fellows, uh, I get lots of phone calls from lots of people at various times who just want a little, they just want a touch point to say, did I make a good decision or how would you approach this? And we can either have a, a brief conversation or a little text message. And, it, and many times I'll say that, don't do that. Or, you know, I, I'll say that, no, you know, yes, this can wait three or five days. Make sure you're set. Because unfortunately, all of us at some point, and I don't want to speak for Dr. Keener, but I made those rash decisions, got myself in trouble. And I got to tell you, I've been in practice 34 years, and I can remember those cases to the moment, what happened and when, and the bad decision I made at that moment. And you want to minimize those things. And so I think I was too young uh, and too aggressive to say I'm weak and didn't want to show my weakness. And, and I think that's, that was totally the wrong approach. At that. So uh, make those phone calls, get guidance. Uh, you know, that's what, that's what partners are for. That's what senior faculty are for. You're not going to drag Jay away from his daughter's wedding, but he'll give you a good he'll give you a good direction that I think that you would benefit from. Yeah, I, I would agree completely with those statements. I mean, it, it, it's not a sign of weakness to ask a senior partner or a mentor in the in the department some advice on a case and circling back and uh, and uh, making sure that you've developed a plan. Having said that, I, I think that we've all had those times when we've been stuck doing tough cases on off hours. And I, I think that th it's okay if you if you feel like you can tackle that to go ahead and take on that case, uh, understaffed, uh, sometimes with a junior resident. Uh, I think the more and more you do that, the more confidence you build, as long as you, you recognize what your limitations are. But uh, uh, faculty members pay attention to junior faculty that are the, the quote unquote yes people that will take on the tough cases and will do a good job and more importantly be a good physician. We'll follow the patient all the way through, we'll handle the complications, we'll own up to the complications. Um, that's how you build a practice, whether you're in private practice or in academics, is your willingness to handle the tough cases and to be a great physician all the way through every episode of care. And it's okay to struggle, it's okay to do that at off hours. And as you do that over time, you will gain a reputation as somebody that is competent, 
and uh, more importantly, somebody that makes the right decisions for patients. And, uh, and that will pay off in spades for you as your, as your practice develops. One of the things when I'm, when I'm in a case and it's not going as well as you'd like it to go or something's different than what you planned, I, I sometimes will just take a pause for the cause and look back and remember a case in residency or fellowship when one of my you know, senior mentors was struggling through a case as well. And I thought, okay, if they struggled, it's okay that I'm struggling and, and I'm going to get through it. Do you guys now, I mean, you're years and years and years into practice. You've probably seen everything twice over and, and learned a lot, d- done a lot of things that you would do now and do differently. Um, do you still call on friends or your mentors or your colleagues when you need advice on cases? Are there ever cases where that comes up still? Um, do you have opportunities to talk it out with others when cases don't go entirely as planned? I think sometimes as a more junior faculty, I, you do get that sense of being a little bit, you know, weak if you have to ask that or have to ask those questions, despite what you guys are saying, you don't want to have to do that. Are there ever times when you guys even 10, 20, 30 years into practice, is this something that you still do? Do you reflect on cases that are difficult or that don't go as planned? And who do you reach out to when that happens? Dr. Bishosef, let's start with you on that. You know, for me, I, I, it still happens. I, I'll be honest with you, and just maybe there's a word for young surgeons. You know, um, I freely admit I didn't sleep for the first three years. You know, my wife said I would be asleep, but I'd be scrubbing my hands and I'd be sleepwalking. I don't think I had a restless sleep until a good third year in practice. Uh, and probably I don't think I was able to sleep on a complication until my five, fifth or sixth year in practice. And so I, you know, that's where I kind of measured myself. So when I was able to sleep on, on, on complex situations, and then when I was able to sleep on a, a complication, then I, all right, I'm great. I'm a great surgeon. And then, you know, that was good for about 10 years. Uh, as Jay said, you know, I thought I did everything, took everything on. I was really good. And then you get to that point where I'm a, boy, I'm an old established guy. I'm in my mid, late fifties. And then I can't afford to screw it up now. And you, sometimes that anxiety actually comes back. As in, and as I've gotten older, I have a harder time with complications and failures than I did when I was 48 or 50. Um, and so I, we all go through that phase in life because, as Jay said before, you're, you're, all we do, the only capital we have is our reputation. And so when, when that reputation is, is solid and it starts, you see it chipping away from the, you know, from the constant rain, you start to feel weak. And so uh, is me, I'm 63, about to be 64. I'm more nervous now than what I was 10 or 15 years ago. And I'll venture to say that's going to happen to you guys as well. Certainly, I have a breadth of experiences, but that doesn't make me less nervous. Sometimes it makes me more nervous and probably more prepared. One of the things, I think that's a great question, Rachel. And I think one of the things that I've noticed in my career is is as I as I've gotten more experience, I've recognized ahead of time when a case is going to be hard, and I have no problems asking colleagues or friends advice on how they would handle a case. But I, I think I I recognize now better than ever when I need to get advice before I start a case. I would say at some point in my middle of my career, when Peter was a fellow with me, I was I was it was a unique situation. Uh, I was the chief of the service, but I was only 10 years into practice. And I remember Peter and I struggled with a few cases. Uh, I remember a lat transfer in particular that was very harvest, uh, very difficult to harvest the tendon through a posterior approach. And I was sitting there struggling through the case. And I, and I think of that, looking at that, 
looking at it now, I have five years later, I have a lot different clinical acumen to figure out different ways to approach a specific problem. And more importantly, I, I think I recognize now which cases have the pitfalls that are going to get me in, into trouble. So I would say now more than ever, I'm more willing to ask uh, opinions of colleagues, both whom I work with and in, in chat groups from other groups in which I belong to, you know, how would you approach this, you know, and getting more directed or pointed advice on a case ahead of time. So um, I think for those listening to this podcast, there's an evolution that happens in, as you gain skill, as you get more gray hair that really helps your spider sense keeps you out of trouble a lot better as you get more seasoned. And, um, and I think uh, that is a natural phenomenon. It probably happens to everybody, but it's definitely not a sign of weakness at any point in your career to seek advice either before a case or during a case. And in fact, your colleagues and your friends will respect you more uh, because it shows a level of thought and understanding that, frankly, not all of our colleagues have. So I think that's, a, that's an important evolution that you need to recognize that will happen. You know, and Peter, I'll just add that uh, there's never been a better time to be a young surgeon than now. I mean, you know, the access to information, uh, you know, to, to video, to consultation is never been greater and it's only getting greater in, in societies like ASES that are exceedingly strong in education and collaboration is so much, make it so much better than what it was 15 or 20, or certainly 25 years ago. So um, I, I would say that the, you know, that being a young surgeon now is a great time. I have to tell you, I, I, I wish that I could grow up and train in this environment because it's never been better and it only continue to get better. Yeah. Sometimes the best learning opportunities when you're a resident or a fellow is when you're seeing your attending struggle with a case, because not only are you anticipating the problem and thinking about, about your, yourself, how you would problem solve it, but you're also, you're witnessing them do it live and in action. So I, I think that um, there's a lot, some of the most educational cases are the ones that, you know, I can go through a month sometimes and crank out 50 cases and every one of them goes as, you know, according to the recipe. But the, the cases that are the most beneficial is when you, there's an intraoperative event that happens that forces you to redirect your plan. Um, so there's, there's great value in those cases. And uh, they, they cause us, guys like us, to get <laughs> gray hair and lose our hair at a quicker pace than we want to. But they're also incredible learning opportunities for your during your fellowship and your residency. I wanted to follow up a little bit with you on that. I remember that flat transfer. I remember it because I, I did it with you and then I went to the lab to try and look at the anatomy because I could not figure out during the case what we were looking at. And I realized in the lab just how close we were to the radial nerve. And the case actually I remember even better with you that illustrates exactly what you're talking about is we did a cuff together. It was just like a, it seemed like a standard cuff where we could not visualize. And, and then you manipulated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you manipulated the arm into forward elevation and all of a sudden it became easy. And I, right. I, that story, I tell that story to like every single training that comes through because yeah. you made one move that I would never have thought to make that like made the case so much easier. I mean, that was the, I think the value of the training that you're bringing up is not, it's not necessarily to watch someone else struggle. It's to watch someone struggle and then to show you, this is how you solve this problem. Um, so I don't, I, that was so valuable to me, certainly uh, in that experience. One of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys is, you know, 
it's both of you mentioned that you had mentors that were good and bad along the way. Certainly, I, I think we've all gotten pieces of advice where we try and do something that someone's advised us to do, and we find out later on that it just wasn't the right path for us. What's one thing that you did early on in practice that you no longer do and that you would advise other people not to do? You know, I, 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 I'll pat myself on the back. I, I think I've always been positive, but um, one thing I can always say, and just in both in management, of running a large orthopedic department um, and in practice is negative energy. I have to tell you, uh, negative energy in the operating room or in the clinic environment is never good. You know, yelling at people doesn't make them work harder. Um, you know, projecting your own anxiety doesn't make people more enabling of you. And, and I think nowadays, again, we're, again, we're much better about that. Surgeons are much better coached about their behavior and, 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 uh, and how people react to their behavior. So you always have to, when you see people that, that have negative energy and project neg negative energy, you just say, I, I'm going to make sure I don't do that because you see how it doesn't foster progress in a, in a narrow or tight situation. If anything, it's, it, it takes people the other way. So, um, you know, I, I have a saying that it's certainly in the operating room, emotion is the enemy. If you're, if you're getting emotional, uh, you're, you're in a losing position. So just always take your own pulse. So, I think that's really good advice. I, I think uh, the way you project yourself in the OR um, is critical, and I, I think that even one of the one of the things that I've been able to do. I don't know how this, what attribute, I mean, what allows a person to do this. But I think when 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 you're in a tough case and uh, you're struggling or there's a complication, just remaining calm and, um, and staying steadfast in your thoughts and, uh, and getting through it um, um, in a kind of peaceful, methodical manner, uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, it, it's, people remember that, and uh, the OR staff remembers that, and I think that that carries a lot of weight into who you are in the OR. And uh, the other thing that I, I think that a lot of times, you know, I work in a tertiary referral practice and I see a lot of complications or cases that maybe weren't handled the right way the first time around. And I think early in my career, a lot of times, you know, patient, a lot of times you get caught up in the discussion sometimes with the patient about, you know, was, was there an error made or was this, you know, could this have been done better? Was this the right surgery, et cetera? I think uh, one of the most important things that I've learned is just to, is to kind of um, try to circumvent those, those questions and just you know, realize that a lot of times that, that you're not there in the moment of the original surgery. You don't know what the thought process, processes are. We all have our own complications and it's very easy to second guess previous surgeons and you should try to get out of that mantra. I think you should stick with doing what's best for the patient at that given moment in time and give the benefit of the doubt to the person that's, uh, that originally ex ex executed the surgery. I think that that carries a lot of weight. And I think uh, that a lot of the referring providers appreciate when you can give um, an objective opinion and uh, try to rise above the old, um, all of the uh, causation um, issues that sometimes patients will try to drag you into. You know, Peter, I've had a saying that I think Rachel has heard probably made too many times. I think early on in medical school, we learned that the ABCs and, and while it's not airway, breathing, circulation, it's arrive on a situation, assign blame and criticize. 
and you really have to fight that. And uh, and we I always say this that you know lawsuits aren't started by lawyers; they're started by doctors. You know, and when you walk into a room, said who did that? Why they do that to you? Uh, I, I just I know we're getting a little bit short on time. And one other thing that I I do think that helps in 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 difficult situations, I'm always a guy that is a list guy, and I and I think in threes. So I always want to have three options on, on, on if I hit a roadblock, what are the three paths that I can take? Um, you know, do I make a bigger incision? Do I make another portal? Do I change my portal? Do I change my positioning? I'm always thinking, what are the three things that I'm going to do when I approach every fork in the road? And I think having that, say, oh, well, this one worked pretty well. But next time, if I, you know, I've got a difficult dissection or an unusual exposure, well, let me try a, a different approach on that. And I think Having that sets of three where all right, I got one, didn't work, let's try two, what's three? Always having that list in your head, ready to roll if you hit that roadblock, I think is a good mantra that when you get into a case, um, and you know, I always laugh about uh, that I think as shoulder and elbow surgeons, we're not total knee guys where they're doing same operation 500 times a year and maybe they do a couple of revisions. You know, I think that's the pleasure of what we do, that we do a variety of situations and, and that's, that's what makes us fun. And, and yeah, if I'm a total joint guy, I just get to think about metal and polyethylene. Whereas I think in what we do, we've got a variety of circumstances that we play in and we can be excited every time we go to work. You know, we are getting a little short on time, but I think, you know, we, we Pete, I got to ask you while Dr. Keener's here, what's the best piece of advice your mentor, Dr. Keener, has given you? Live, on the air, he's listening. What is it? Well, if I, aside from correctly advising me that Bob Dylan is not a rock star, he's a folk artist. <laughs> one of the people that, if you haven't worked with Jake Keener, one of the benefits of working with him is you learn a lot about music in the operating room. But um, one of the, I, I'll, I don't know that Jake Keener directly gave him this advice, but it's by far the most, by far one of the more important things he taught me, if he never directly said it. You know, Jay Keener was really instrumental in helping me to get this job that I have that I feel very fortunate to have. And one of the things that he told me when I got this job is he said, you know, you're joining someone who's going to be a good partner. And I, when he told me that, I thought a lot about it and I take it to heart to try and do my best to be the same because I think it's really important. And, and one of the things that I watched with Jay Keener is that he lived it. I mean, even if he didn't tell me you need to be a good partner, I watched him be a good partner and a good mentor to everyone in that division. And now to lead that division to great new heights. So that, to me, that was by far the most important thing that's been so instrumental in my thinking about the way I approach situations, especially in a group setting. Thank you, Peter. What about you, Rach? What, what do you think was the most important thing you learned from your mentor, Dr. Bishosa? Well, there are too many to count by far for sure, but I, I think it's a tie between two. Um, one thing, and he said this a lot, I'm sure he still says it to, to residents and fellows coming through, but as a sports med doc, don't be a left hand, little finger only surgeon, be a sports med doc, be a, be their doc, be their physician, be there for your patients. And I think it, it really stems from a lot of the things he's mentioned tonight and that, you know, you, you don't say no, um, your, your patient that you've done their ACL and their grandma calls you, or they call you because their grandma has you know, a fall and hurt her back, figure it out, you know, take care of them, be there for them. Be, you might not be the person to ultimately treat them, but you're getting the phone call and they've placed their trust in you. And so, you know, don't be a left-hand little finger only surgeon, you know, make sure that you are taking care of the whole patient, the whole athlete and their families. And, and that's 
that's why, you know, I tell everyone when I grow up, I want to be like CBJ. That's, that's the kind of doctor I hope I am, have, have become and am becoming um, someone who takes care of the whole patient in front of you. So I think that's the best piece of advice. And we kind of live it every day. Um, the last thing, uh, or the other thing I would say is uh, the mantra, motion is lotion, ice is nice, weight is great. I tell that to every single patient. Um, and uh, I say, this is what my mentor told me. So I'm going to tell you, it seems to work. Um, and they, they kind of laugh and, and I laugh and um, it just brings it on a level that we can all understand, kind of stops the doctor talk and just talks as two humans talking to, to, to each other about a problem. And, and um, it just, I don't know, it, it, it makes you more human, I think, to your patients. So in summary, CBJ has taught me to be hopefully just a little bit more human, a little bit more normal, and not just a doctor with a white coat, uh, but someone who takes care of people. And so I'm grateful for that. So thank you, CBJ. Appreciate it. One thing that I, I, I think that's, uh, those are great statements. I, I, I will tell you that um, one of the benefits of being a, a mentor is that all, your mentees end up teaching you a lot themselves. So what, the great thing about academic medicine is you get to mentor a lot of people. But I, I can tell you that I learned from, I learned a lot from Peter. I learned a lot from every fellow that's come through. And uh, it's really a privilege to be able to mentor so many people. Uh, not only do you shape their career, but you end up learning a lot from them and you form lasting friendships that uh, will carry on forever. So uh, it's a really a privilege to be in a situation where you get to train um, um, future leaders, especially people that are exceptionally talented. And uh, Rachel and Peter, you guys are two great examples of that. So you should be proud of yourselves. You know, and, and Peter, can I just, I just want to add to that point. Even if you're not going into academic practice, I think it is critical to stay engaged with your colleagues. They may be your competitors, uh, but they're still your colleagues. And and yes, I, I may be in a, a, a not a very big city, in a small city where you know there's five or six shoulder trained guys. I think you still, you know, I, I see I see that in Chicago and I see that in other markets. Develop that association because again, you still have the common goal. And, and then having that club that you're part of will carry you a lot longer when, you know, when, if you find yourself isolated, you're really in a difficult situation. And so, and, and I hate to say the other thing, that guy who's your competitor, someday may be your partner, the way the orthopedic world is changing. Um, I, I think you want to find more friends and, and do everything you can to find friends, especially friends that, that are like you and do what you do. So. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming and doing this with us. Um, I know both of you are very busy and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you giving us all this advice. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate um, all of your sage wisdom. So thank you again for coming on. This has been great. That's about all the time we have for this podcast today. We want to thank our guests so much, Dr. Bush Joseph and Dr. Keener, mentors, colleagues, and friends for life. We've benefited so much from your guidance and mentorship over the years and our current and future trainees, as well as our current and future patients are all benefiting too. So thank you both so much. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.